Good morning. My name is Wes McCain. I'm the senior pastor and one of the elders here at Crosspoint. And I want to again extend my welcome and thankfulness for you joining us this morning as we worship and serve our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. If you would turn in your Bibles to Exodus 27. Exodus 27. We'll be looking at particularly all of Exodus 27, but as we've learned in the weeks past, there is more material kind of later on in the book. And so we'll see that some of the details that we find out in Exodus 27 will be covered again in Exodus 38. So, but we'll spend our time mainly on Exodus 27. If you have an outline um, uh, that you grabbed from the back, you can go ahead and just trash that because everything has changed since Thursday when I sent it in. Every, no, nah, I'm just kidding. But, uh, but seriously, uh, you can go ahead and mark out those points uh, because uh, things, things really started clicking on Friday night. Uh, where a uh, week of preparation and reading and thinking, and you ever had that that op, you know that thing where you've prepared, you spent lots of time, and then like you're laying in your bed and like, oh, it all makes sense now. Well, that's what Exodus 27 happened this week. Uh, Friday night was like, man, all these things are clicking. So there will be three points that we cover uh, today, particularly in looking at three different things. So uh, they'll throw those up on the uh, on the PowerPoint. But there's three things that we'll look at. The bronze altar, which represents presentation. Then we'll look at the courtyard that represents participation. And then we'll look at the lamp, the lampstand, the lamp, and the oil that represents presence. And so that's the way that we'll, we'll try and conduct our time together this morning as we look at Exodus 27. But if you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word in Exodus 27. <clears throat> says this, you shall make the altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square and its height shall be three cubits. And you shall make horns for its, on its four corners and its horns shall be of one piece with it. And you shall overlay it with bronze. You shall make pots for it to receive its ashes and shovels and basins and forks and fire pans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall also make for it a grating, a network of bronze, and on the net you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. And you shall set it under the ledge of the altar so that the net extends halfway down the altar. You shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. And the poles shall be put through the ring so that the poles are on the two sides of the altar when it is carried. You shall make it hollow with boards. As it has been shown to you on the mountain, so shall it be made." You shall make the court of the tabernacle. On the south side, the court shall have hangings of fine twine linen, a hundred cubits long for one side. Its twenty pillars and their twenty bases shall be of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall, uh, shall be of silver. And likewise, for its length on the north side, there shall be hangings a hundred cubits long, its pillars twenty and their bases twenty of bronze. So the hooks of the pillars and their fillets, fillets shall be of silver. And for the breadth of the court on the west side, there shall be hangings for 50 cubits with 10 pillars and 10 bases. The breadth of the court on the front to the east shall be 50 cubits. The hangings for the side of the gate shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and three bases. On the other side of the hanging shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and three bases. For the gate of the court shall be a screen 20 cubits long of blue and purple scarlet yarns and fine twine linen embroidered with needlework. It shall have four pillars, and with them four bases. And all the pillars around the court shall be filleted with silver. Their hooks shall be of silver, and their bases of bronze. The length of the court shall be a hundred cubits, the breadth fifty, and the height five cubits, with hangings of fine twine linen and bases of bronze. 
All the utensils of the tabernacle for every use and all its pegs and all the pegs of the court shall be of bronze. You shall command the people of Israel that they bring, you to, that they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light, the, that a lamp may regularly be set up to burn. In the tent of meeting outside the veil that is before the testimony, Aaron and his son shall <clears throat> tend to it from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to be observed throughout their generations by the people of Israel. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. And God, we don't need to make your word relevant. We don't need to make it powerful. We don't need to make it unique. It is all those things because it comes from you. Lord, your word is powerful, God. It sustains us, Lord. It by your powerful word, upholds the universe by the word. The word of your power right now, God. And so I pray, even Exodus 27, for us right now, reading all the details about the tabernacle and the courtyard and the, the lampstand and olive oil, God, it seems so obscure. It seems so irrelevant. But God, th- this is your whole counsel, oh God. Every word has been breathed out from you. And that God If you did not want us to have Exodus 27, you wouldn't have given it to us, O God. But you have. And so I pray right now by the Spirit at work in us, you would guide us into all truth. Let us see the beauty of the God that you, who we worship, Lord. And that, Lord, you would create a greater intimacy with us, God, through Christ Jesus. Lord, we love you and we praise you. It's in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. I want to throw up by, um, by way of uh, people who've asked for it, if you're a visual learner in here and you're trying to put the pieces together of what we've been talking about the past few weeks, here's a couple of pictures I think might help you as you think through what the tabernacle looks like and particularly what, um, what we'll be talking about today, the courtyard and things like that. So if you throw that picture up, this is, this is kind of the courtyard that we'll be discussing today, this outer rim, and right in the middle or kind of in the back, is the kind of sanctuary that holds the holy place and the most holy place. And so we'll be talking today about the bronze altar that kind of sits in front at the gates of this thing. And then there's another picture I think I threw in. And so this is the tabernacle, what we've been talking about. So you'll see the, the lampstand and the bread of presents and the veils and the mercy seat and all these things. So if you were looking for an idea of what we've been discussing all, all this time, uh, this is a pretty good visual representation of those things, if you're a visual learner. And so the pieces that we're going to learn about today, as we already said, the bronze altar and the courtyard and the lampstand, that all these pieces are necessary and uh, important and significant to Israel's ongoing relationship with Yahweh. They have significance, each piece. And to try and break it down into three Ps, not that I'm trying to be cute or anything, but is that the bronze altar is about, it's about presentation. The people are coming to present something to God on their behalf. Then the courtyard is about participation, is that they're joining in on this worship. And then the lampstand, the oil and all this, is about the presence of Yahweh with them through all these things. And so let's look at the first couple verses with the bronze altar. This will be in the first eight verses here. Is that... The bronze altar, the presence of the bronze altar, is concerned with about Israel's presenting sacrifices and presenting themselves to the Lord. And so we learn a lot of things about this altar that is supposed to be constructed by them. It tells us about the properties and purpose and 
the pattern of the altar that was given to them is that this altar is overlaid with bronze, right? It's overlaid with bronze. And that's to indicate something different is happening here. Is that so far we've seen that most things in the holy place and the most holy place are made out of what? Gold. And so the farther away that you get from God's holy presence that is in the most holy place, you see that the materials start to change. Basically to say that the one who is in the most holy place, the one who dwells there, is worthy of the greatest of our offering, particularly gold and not bronze. So the farther away that you get from the most holy place, you get lesser material, in a sense. The closer you get to the holiness, to the most holy place, the better the material. And that this bronze altar has a significant feature on it. It is, has horns on it. It has horns on this altar, at the corners of it. And some people may say, particularly a verse in Psalm 118, that what are these horns for? Well, the horns is where the priests sprinkle the blood on the horns of the altar, and maybe it's a place where they tie down the sacrifice that's going to be sacrificed on the altar. could be all those things. But one feature of these horns is really significant later on, is that these horns seem to symbolize a place of refuge, a place of safety, a place of salvation for a person. You just think about the stories in 1 Kings. If you remember the story of Adonijah and Joab. So Adonijah and Joab created this kind of plot to, you know, a, a power grab, to grab the throne, right? To, to take it and make it his own when it was actually Solomon's throne, Solomon's empire. And when Solomon is declared king, Adonijah and Joab are terrified because they believe that Solomon is going to put them to death. And so you know what they do? They run to the altar and they grab the horns thinking, nobody can touch me. This is a place of safety. It's a place of refuge. It's a place of salvation. That's what these horns may have symbolized for God's people. A place of refuge and safety. And just as we talked about last week in the tabernacle, the tabernacle is about God's holiness. It is about God's separation from sin and from the people. But also, let's not get misconstrued that that's not all of what it's about. Is God's presence with them is not just about holiness, not just about separation for the people. It's also about their salvation. That God's presence is also a refuge for them. It's also a place of safety for them. And so this morning, I want us all to remember this. Yes, God is a holy God. God is someone who is completely distinct from us, having no sin, impurity, evil. He is perfection. That's that's a great thing. But it's not something to run away from. It's something to run towards. Because God is also a place of refuge and safety and salvation for us. This morning, you can have Him. He is holy, but He is also a refuge for sinners to run to and grab hold of. And this altar that has horns on it is placed, as you saw in the, in the picture, is placed kind of right at the beginning, right after the entrance of the gates of the outer courtyard. And it's placed in a, in a kind of an intentional place right when you walk in. And I think that's probably intentional, right? And maybe you're here this morning and you are OCD and you, or you not only do you organize, you love to organize. Anybody in here love to organize? Okay, two people. Okay, so there's not as many OCD people. I see people pointing at their spouse right now. So I don't see any hands going up. I see people going like this which means something. 
So there's some of you that have that weird kind of thing that they, you just love to put things in a place, right? And everything has an intention. So you love to organize closets, garages, and things. Look, I know some guys in here. I've seen your garage. You could eat off of it. So people like to organize things, put things in a place, right? Everything is intentional. There is no accident to where everything is. And I would say this about the altars, that where it's been placed, there is no accident about where it is in the tabernacle complex. It's right when you walk in through the gate, right? Why would it be placed right there when Israel walks in through the gate? To remind them that in order to have a relationship with Yahweh, it's going to come through sacrifice. So right when you walk into the, to the tabernacle, to the complex, as you're going to see on the forefront of their minds, it should be a reminder that to have access to Yahweh, it's going to come through sacrifice. To maintain relationship with Yahweh, it's going to come through sacrifice. Walt Kaiser says it like this. The position is just inside the gate, which made it easily accessible, unavoidable, and unmistakable. When you walk in, it's at the forefront of your mind. A relationship with this God is going to come through sacrifice, and only through that. And I would say this this morning, brothers and sisters, entrance into God's presence, access to Him, relationship with Him, is only going to come through sacrifice. Because only through sacrifice is there forgiveness of sins, what Hebrews 9.22 says. Everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So the altar is a reminder that they need their sins to be forgiven in order to have access to Yahweh. But praise God, we don't need an altar anymore. Hebrews 13.10 says this, We have an altar, that being Jesus Christ, from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. The author of Hebrews is saying there's people who continue to keep the Mosaic law, who continue to make offerings and sacrifices on the bronze altar. And the author of Hebrews says, Praise God, we need no more altar. We have Him in Christ Jesus. We have Him. And so what is this altar for here in Exodus 27? Well, if you look at Exodus 38, 1 through 7, is that this altar is for burnt offering. That's what it's called, the altar of burnt offerings. And you can find specific instructions in your favorite book of the Bible, Leviticus. Did you catch that? And I just want to warn you, Leviticus is coming on Sunday mornings. I see people shaking their heads now. You can find these specific instructions about burnt offerings in Leviticus 1 through 7 particularly. And the offerer brought their offering into the courtyard to the altar. And most of the time they already sacrificed it on their own. And they presented it on the altar to the priest so that he could burn the offering before them. And that might be an animal sacrifice. It might be a grain offering or peace offering or even a dove or something like that. And what this did is that these offerings sustained the relationship with God. It atoned for their sins. It was an act of worship and obedience on their part. And it temporarily satisfied the wrath of God that was on them because of their sins. And so what these offerings did is that what Leviticus 1 says is that when these offerings were burnt, the aroma, the smoke would go up to God and the aroma was pleasing to the Lord. It's pleasing to the Lord. This means that their offering was accepted. It was pleasing to Him enjoyable this morning we don't have to make offerings to please the lord because there is no offering that you could give that could ultimately please the lord and satisfy god's wrath 
But praise be to God that we have a burnt offering in Christ Jesus. This is how Paul discusses Jesus' own life and death. Listen to what he says in Ephesians 5, 2. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. A fragrant offering. His sacrifice on our behalf is pleasing to God. Paul describes his ministry, his sacrifice of what he has done as a burnt offering in 2 Corinthians 2, 14-17. He says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, and the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? I mean, my ministry is my offering to the Lord, and may He be pleased by it. That is what all of our lives are, Christians. Romans 12, 1 says, right? Is that we are to present our bodies as a, what kind of sacrifice? Living sacrifice, right? Holy and acceptable, pleasing to God. And this is your spiritual act of worship. This is what we're to do, Christians. That the burnt offering is fulfilled in Christ Jesus. And now, for us who follow Christ Jesus, our offering is us. As we give Him our ministry, our lives, our well-being, all things are for Him. What does this section end with? This section ends with this in verse 8. Listen to this. You shall make it hollow with boards. As it has been shown to you on the mountain, so shall it be made. Is that right here in verse 8, God is saying, this is the expectations that I have. This is, I've given you the instructions. This is basically God saying, just follow the instructions. Husbands, have you ever heard your wife say that to you when you're trying to build something? Just pull out the instructions and read them, Wes. They're right there, and they're in English. Just read it. I'm not saying Myra's ever said that to me, but I have heard it before that it was said to other people. Just read the instruction. Follow the instructions. God has given the blueprints of what His dwelling place is to look like. He's designed it, and He's approved it. You just think about this if you've ever built a home before. Many of you have had your homes built, and some of you have built homes before. Let's say that you design and you approve the blueprints, and then the workers go do something different without your knowledge, without your consent. They put pillars in places there shouldn't be pillars. They move the bathroom to upstairs. The kitchen is in the, in the basement. And you're like, who approved this? I didn't say this. This is not what I wanted. Right? It's, it's a travesty. And unfortunately, when it comes to God's tabernacle and placement and instructions, we can think that these are negotiable. We can think that these things are optional when it comes to God's instructions. But here in verse 27, chapter 27, verse 8, God's saying, Follow the instructions. You don't get to pick and choose how you build my place and where you put things, right? I want you to turn to 2 Kings with me, chapter 10, verses 16, because I want you to see this, how humans, us, have this inclination to believe that we can deviate from God's instructions or even improve upon God's instructions. And we see this in the life of Ahaz when it comes to the temple furnishings and things like that. Second Kings 16, and we'll be looking at 10 through 16. Just listen to what he does when it comes to the bronze altar that is being told how to be built right here in Exodus 27. When King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath, 
Pilser, king of Assyria, he saw the altar that was at Damascus. And King Ahaz sent to Uriah the priest a model of the altar and its pattern, exact in all its details. And Uriah the priest built the altar in accordance with all that the King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. Uriah the priest made it before King Ahaz arrived from Damascus. Now just pause right here. King Ahaz goes to Damascus and he sees a pagan king and he sees an altar of this pagan king has created for his God. And he says, ooh, I like that altar. That's way better than the altar I got. I want an altar like that. Right? You ever been to somebody's house like, ooh, I got to have that. That's nice. This is, what, this is what Ahaz is doing right here. He has a temple. He has instructions on how that temple is supposed to be. But he's like, I got to have that. So he sends the, de- he sends the details of the altar and its pattern to Uriah so that he can have it built. Going on, verse 12. And when the king came from Damascus, the king viewed the altar. Then the king drew near to the altar and went up on it. And he burned his burnt offering and his grain offering and poured his drink offering and threw the blood of a peace offering on the altar. So another no-no. Not only is he supposed to not deviate from the pattern of the altar that was given to him, but he's now making his own sacrifices and offerings. That's the priest's job. He's thinking, who cares what God's instructed me to do? I'll do whatever I want, kind of thing. Look at going on. Verse 14. And the bronze altar that was before the Lord, you know, the one that was told how to be made in Exodus 27? Listen to what happens here. That was before the Lord. He removed from the front of the house, from the place between his altar and the house of the Lord, and he put it on the north side of the altar. FYI, you don't get to move God's furniture around. How crazy would that be if somebody just walked into your house and was like, I don't like where your couch is at. I'm going to put it over here. I don't like where your TV's hanging. I'm going to put it back there. And he just thinks, oh, who cares? I mean, that's, God doesn't care. Listen to this. And King Ahaz commanded Uriah the priest, on the great altar, burn the morning burnt offerings and the evening grain offerings and the king's burnt offering and his grain offering with the burnt offerings of all the people of the land and their grain offering and their drink offering and throw it on it all the blood of the burnt offering, all the blood of the sacrifice. But the bronze altar shall be for me to inquire by. Meaning, now he's changed the purpose of the bronze altar. He's changed the purpose. That's not the purpose of what it was intended here in Exodus 27. So listen to all that King Ahaz has done. He has the instructions on how the tabernacle is to be built, the temple is to be built, how the bronze altar is to be used and things like that. And he says, who cares? I'll choose. Church, let me, let me just say this this morning. God's instructions don't need, require, our modification, our improvements, our innovation. God's instructions require our obedience. What God has said is how He wants things. And we don't get to play with them and say, this is how I want things. This is what I'll do. Yeah, I know he said it this way, but I'm going to do it this way. Yeah, I know he said this, but that's kind of optional. I'm not going to necessarily do that. That is not how God's instructions work. They are not open to correction or variation. And church, I think we need to be very careful here. What we hold in our hands is God's word to us. Instructions for us to live by And we don't get to tease out and say, these are the things I'm going to obey, and these are the things I'm not. And maybe he'll probably accept it this way and not this way, so I'm going to do it this way. God has said it. 
He has said how He wants His place to be. And that is what we must follow. They are not open to correction. You can turn back to Exodus 27. The altar signifies how we're to present ourselves before God in offerings and sacrifices as, a, as worship to God. And now we move on to the courtyard where the altar resides. And that, this represents our intimacy with the Lord. Our intimacy. You know, we were at a, you know, when I think about LSU baseball games this past season, and you think about the seating there, if you've ever been to an LSU baseball game, you know, you have the people who sit right behind home plate. I mean, the best seats in the house, right? Right behind home plate. And then you got people in the general seating. And then you got, you got the standing room only kind of people who are, you're standing on your tiptoes, you're trying to get a little peek in there. But, you know, you're kind of like, I don't care. I'm here in the ballpark, and I'm just happy to be here, right? I'm just happy to be here. Excited. I don't need to be behind home plate. Well, this is kind of the sense that we get from Israel in their distance and proximity, proximity to God. Is that the courtyard is another layer of God's dwelling place that they're happy to reside in. Because as we'll find out, they realize they don't deserve to be anywhere near it in the first place is that the tabernacle complex is what we've talked about before. is kind of in three tiers, just like we saw on the mountain. you got Israel at the bottom. you got Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, the 70 elders at the middle of the mountain. And then you got Moses at the top. And that's what we're seeing here. Is that you have the most holy place, you have the holy place, and you have the court. Three tiers there, right? And despite the division that is created with the tabernacle, like we talked about last week, is that God still wants to give His people a place to worship and draw near to Him and come and enjoy His presence, right? He wants to give them a place to participate. And that is what the courtyard is. Is that the people can enter and bring their offerings and sacrifices and worship to the Lord. And it might think that, man, the priests get special treatment. They get to go all the way in. They get to go in there. They're the only ones who can truly have intimacy with God. Well, that is not what the courtyard says. The courtyard says that God wants His people to draw near to Him, to experience Him, to be a part of His joy and worship and presence. And so, praise the Lord for His grace in giving a courtyard so that Israel can experience any level of intimacy with Him. Any level. The psalmist, as Dr. David read this morning, seems to be very happy that he even gets to put a toe into the courts, right? Psalm 104, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Praise God, bless his name. Psalm 84, 2, my soul long yet faints for the courts of the Lord. Psalm 84, 10, for a day in the courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper, right? So it doesn't seem like there's any animosity for an Israelite, like, I don't get to go all the way in. I, I'm mad and angry. No, the Israelites realize we don't deserve to be anywhere near this, but God is giving us a level of intimacy just to join in in the courtyard. Praise God. Praise God. The courtyard is a place where all of Israel can participate in the worship of Yahweh. And that it's not just a responsibility of the priest. Everyone is involved in participating in worshiping Lord, the Lord. Everyone brings their offering. They bring their sacrifices into the courtyard to be made on 
bronze altar. They prepare their offering. They bring their offering. They slaughter their offering. They present their offering. And that this is Israel's sign of love and devotion to God. Worship is a joyful thing for them, for Israel. Church, worship is not the responsibility of the pastor, of the elders, of the deacons, of the worship team. It's the responsibility of all of God's people to worship. It's all of our responsibility. We can't designate this or give it to somebody else and say, oh, they'll, they'll do these things. God has called us all to participate in worshiping Him because He is worthy and deserving of every single person's praise and worship. And that worship isn't merely an obligation. It's not a chore to get done. I mean, you just heard the psalmist say, let's go to the courts, praise God, and give thanksgiving. Man, that doesn't sound boring to him. That doesn't sound like a chore that his mom is dragging him by the, by the, the collar, dragging him there, right? He wants to go. He wants to go. Because he wants to be with the Lord. So, worship is not an obligation, but it's an opportunity to honor and worship God. It's not a chore, it's a gift. And it's not optional, it's not negotiable. It should be our desire to be with God. This morning, I would just have us ask all these things for us. Does worshiping the Lord with God's people feel like a chore, feel like a hassle? Or does it feel almost like, no, I need to do these things. I need to do these things. Like I need to eat, like I need to drink, like I need to take medication. I need these things in order to survive. Because this is what, this is what the psalmist feels about the courtyard. i got to go there. Because that's where God is among His people. It's not negotiable. It's not optional. The third thing is this that we see is in verses 20 through 21 as we see the lamp which indicates God's presence with His people continually, perpetually. You've probably maybe have visited the, uh, the eternal flame that's in memory of JFK. It's actually, it wasn't the first eternal flame. There was actually another one before that. Jackie Kennedy got the idea from the eternal flame of the unknown soldier in Paris. I won't try my French out here, but, uh, but it's, it's rekindled every day at 6.30 p.m. by soldiers. And it's a symbol, it's a memory of all the soldiers that gave their life, all the French soldiers that gave their life in World War I. And like the flame, it's rekindled every day, and so that every day their sacrifice would never be forgotten. It would always be remembered by the French people throughout generations since World War I. Interestingly, the priests have a similar responsibility in the tabernacle of rekindling the lamp regularly as a reminder of God's presence and His character with them. We've already seen the instructions of how to build the lamp in Exodus 25. Now we're getting instructions of how to tend it and care for it and what's to be done with it, right, in the holy place. What we find is the lamp is to be regularly set up to burn. And that shall burn throughout the night and perpetual ritual throughout all generations. So this isn't just to stop with this generation. It's to go on and carry on from their children to their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren and so forth. And that this is one of the responsibilities of the Aaronic priesthood. This is where we see Samuel in 1 Samuel 3 in the temple doing. 
well, what is the significance of this lamp burning during the night? Well, it's a reminder that God's presence, he, it doesn't go away, and he doesn't fall asleep. God doesn't sleep. Yahweh's lamp stays on when every Israelite quenches their lamp at night. Psalm 121, 1-4 says this, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Psalm 127.1, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Praise God, when we put our heads on our pillow, our sovereign God does not. He sustains you throughout the night. How much did you have last night to think about how you were going to breathe and survive the night? You didn't think a thing about it because you put your head on your pillow and said, I trust the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth to care for me throughout the night. Because he doesn't sleep and he doesn't slumber. He sustained you throughout the night and he will sustain his people throughout every generation. God doesn't fall asleep on us, but as we see about the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, we fall asleep on him, don't we? Jesus said, just pray with me for... <laughs> Just a little bit, right? And he comes back, and what, what are the disciples doing? Sleeping. Undisciplined. Not caring about the nature of the situation. God doesn't sleep on us. We tend to sleep on Him. And this continual, regular burning of this lamp is a reminder that God's presence with His people doesn't flicker. It doesn't fade. He doesn't forsake, him, forsake them. He is faithful to them. His presence doesn't wane or wander when our faithfulness is fickle. Praise God for that. Aren't you thankful that God is not like you? Whew, man. Aren't you thankful that God is not like us in this? He's loyal and He's faithful when we give up so easily on Him. Right? But He is never faithless to us. As He says in John 1, Joshua 1.5, I will never leave you nor what? forsake you. Psalm 37, 25, I've, I've been young and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken. 2 Corinthians 4, 9, Paul's talking about all the sufferings that he has experienced in his ministry, and he says this, we are afflicted in every single way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Can you believe to think about all, going through all those things and it never to cross your mind to say, God must have given up on me? That's really hard to think about, right? You're going through a terrible situation right now. Maybe it's a disease. Maybe it's an illness. Maybe it's a child who has left you. Whatever it may be, to not in that moment to say, man, all these bad things are happening to me because God's given up on me. Let me just tell you this. God has never given up on you and he never will give up on you. None can, no one can snatch you out of his hand. Church, remember this, that when every single person leaves you, God stands by you. This, is what, this was Paul's farewell address in 2 Timothy 4. He said, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. He goes on to say this, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. Church, when... Family leaves, health leaves, income leaves, job leaves, whatever may leave you. The Lord has not. He will stand by you. 
He will not forsake you. In Christ, the Lord has provided all these things. He's provided an altar and a sacrifice to atone for our sins. He's provided us an opportunity to commune with Him, to have intimacy with Him, and a relationship that we do not deserve. And this morning for the Christian, He gives His perpetual presence with us by His Spirit. This morning, this is what we learn from the altar, from the courtyard, and from the lamp. Christ is our sacrifice. He has atoned for our sins. He is the place where we can have true intimacy with God. And we can go through the courtyard, we can go through the holy place, and we can go into the most holy place with confidence, as Hebrews 4 says. And we also have a God who never gives up on us and never sleeps on us. This morning, maybe you're here this morning and you've given up on God. Maybe you're here and you said too many bad things have happened. Let me ask you this. Who are you going to run to? Who are you going to run to? Who, who, who are those horns of the altar that you're going to run to refuge and safety and salvation? This morning, there is no safety. There is no refuge. There is no salvation for you outside of Christ Jesus. And I pray that you would run to Him and take hold of Him this morning for all those things. Let's pray. God, we love You and we thank You for this day that we can remember who Christ is for us every single day. He is today. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Thank You, God. I pray this morning that You would bring conviction to our hearts. You would... You would Encourage us and strengthen us to be living sacrifices, offering ourselves to you every day because you are deserving of everything. Lord, we love you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.